This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield. We try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life on this show. Uh, Willie Daly is my name. My co-host is Scotland Stefanos. Oh, hey. It was inevitable. My it was, goodness. wasn't it? Yeah, it there was. Is, there is a reason I mispronounced your name. Mm. Um, we were just joking about mispronunciations of names before we came on air. Yep. And I, for some stupid reason, decided to carry that into the show. So anyway, I apologise to the listener, but not to you. It's fun driving you in this way. So you know what I immediately thought about? <laughs> yeah. There's this wonderful line from perhaps the greatest comedy ever written, mm-hmm. where the central character in dialogue with his wife at one point says, ah, fun. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) And I just think, yes, in the midst of your busy day, you do need to find those little moments of unexpected enjoyment, those little bits of fun. Ah, yes, I remember what fun feels like. Is this one of those moments or are you saying, oh, that's right, I remember fun and this isn't it? (laughs) Because it could be read either way. The text bears either meaning. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Hey, we've got some housekeeping to do before we get into today's show. Yeah. Do you want to play housekeeper? I don't know. Are we talking about the same dirty closet that needs to be? <laughs> yeah, the one that neither of us wants to venture anywhere near, yes. No, it's not It's not a dirty closet. No, this is what our, one of our favourite closets. It is! Because it's, a, it's something we started last year, and I don't know if any listeners liked it, but we liked it, yeah. so we're going to do it again. And, in and fact, that is I, our not-quite-a-book-club uh, thing, which we never really named. We didn't. And I, I should say, for anybody who's attentive, I did lay a nice big Easter egg there right at the outset of the program. Ah, uh, well done. Yeah, yes, no. you did. I did. You did. Which means we now don't need to explain anymore and we should just go with the show, right? The audience should be expected to just piece it together from what you said. So what we try to do, we've really <laughs> got to find something. <laughs> now, yeah. Hang on, the not quite book club thing. We've really got to, because it's not only books that we're doing. Well, it's almost never books. It's, well, I mean, if I had it my way, you know what we do. Yeah, doing. I know, but that's because you want to make it into an actual book club. No, I don't. removes the fun. It does. But anyway, what we try to do is we try to take things that warrant closer attention that warrant multiple readings or viewings or hearings. And we try to expose our lives to the light that is cast by these luminescent objects. So anybody who's been listening, you'll remember last year we did HBO's three-season series, Succession. We did... There's a new series coming up too, by the way. Are we going to revisit? I hope so. It depends what season four is like. Yeah, okay. Um, We did Jane Austen's Emma, which... Mm -hmm. I should point out, was one of our most popular of the year. So even though you want to say we shouldn't just be doing books, it was, in fact, Emma. Oh, that is that a book? I just thought it was a film. Well, some of us experienced it as a... <laughs> may, may I just say, you pulled off... How can I put this? You pulled off your non-reading of Emma like an Adonis. <laughs> I no, never would I have guessed. I, if I didn't know, I, I never would have guessed. I worked really hard on that one. I know you did. You gave me homework and I did it. Mostly. Uh, We did a movie at the end of the year, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, the masterpiece with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Sidney Poitier. We we also did something kind of really unusual. We did Queen's set list at uh, Live Aid in 1985. So we try to vary things quite a bit. We're going to try to keep varying things this year. So what we're. This was your suggestion, this one. And I have to say, it never would have occurred to me. And I loved it. I did actually suggest it because I I knew that you would love it. Some people do the more unpalatable things first in hopes that it makes something kind of, you know, less than ideal look better later down the list. But I thought, let me just give Philly what he wants. So (laughs) what we're doing, what we're doing is a show that is an unquestioned masterpiece. It is indisputably one of the greatest pieces of situation comedy ever written. I think one of the things that makes Mm -hmm. it spectacular is the fact that it was so limited and miniature in scale. Six episodes mm-hmm. per season, two seasons separated by four years in between them, 1975 and 1979, 12 episodes in total. I'm referring, of course, to the comic masterpiece by John Cleese and Connie Booth, Faulty Towers. Of all the shows, Willie, that rewards multiple viewings and that tries mm. to work out what is it aesthetically What is it satirically, what is it ethically that makes this show so unbearably funny? 
when by all accounts it really shouldn't. Mm. I mean, the situation that it describes is ludicrous. The characters are purposefully ludicrous to the point of being caricatures. Probably the one character that isn't would be the character played by Connie Booth herself. Mm. Well, she's the straight character to everyone else's. That's right. But anyway, it's going to be a great deal of fun. So we're going to be recording that over the next, at some stage in the next couple of weeks. You'll be able to hear it first by podcast or on the ABC Listen app on the 16th of March. You'll be able to hear it on RN on the 19th of March. And I think it's just going to be unbearably fun. It should be good. And the good thing about this is almost no one has to do any homework. Because if you haven't seen all of Faulty Towers by now, given that it's been, I think, on constant repeat on the ABC for the last 30 years, Mm. then I'm not sure I can help you. And also, it's one of those shows that everyone's shocked to learn there are only 12 episodes. Yeah, that's right. You think there must have been hundreds, because it's always on, I guess. So actually, if you only know a handful of points of dialogue, you actually know a much greater percentage of the whole work than you might otherwise think. I would just encourage people, though, to go back and try to find a way of rewatching it. Now, I I should say it's difficult. So I've had to... You know what? I reckon you'd find it at a local library. Yes, I agree. Uh, I've had to dust off my DVD copies. Um, I can't find them on any streaming platforms. I think that's because they're in between sort of rights agreements. But it's familiar enough. Can I... Okay, can I tell you one little secret? Okay. Faulty Towers lived only in my imagination for the better part of six years. The first time mean? the first time that I heard it was as a sixteen year old and a weird oh, relative okay. bought it for me on audio tape. <laughs> as though it were a radio play. I kid you not. So I had access to six episodes. I now realize they were all from the first season. But I had no idea what any of these characters looked like. Or any, and it was simply That's the recordings. So it was simply the recordings of the episodes themselves. So the bits of physical comedy, I had no idea what was yes. going on. I had no... It must have been a revelation when you saw it. It was, Waleed, that's the only term. It was yeah. an epiphany. And then getting the jokes and realizing the extent to which physicality and not just words are central to everything about the show. Yeah. The cramped spaces... Anyway. Yeah. Well, as you would expect with John Cleese. Indeed. All right. Well, good. I'm glad we've set that up. So you've got about a month, everybody, to get ready for that uh, next installment of the Not Quite a Book Club. Yeah. This week is not that. No. This week's a very different topic. Did you watch the Super Bowl? Portions. Well, that's all you can watch, right? Because it goes for about 12 hours for the five minutes of actual football gets played. And Um, it is an astonishing spectacle. Yeah. Given how much actual physical action takes place and yet the brutal consequences of potentially brutal consequences of that action. I mean, it is one of those astonishing moments that an extraordinary number of people gather around. And even the fact, I mean, this is something we're going to talk about in a, in a future episode, so I don't want to anticipate anything now, but my two teenage sons were watching Cincinnati Bengals play the Buffalo Bills back in January, when DeMar Hamlin received Uh, the blow to the chest Mm. and then the frantic activity on the field and the long commercial breaks and the bewildered conversations and the tears in the faces of teammates. And then hearing various commentators who make their living covering this sport just saying, this is a game of violence, and every once in a while, the violence that takes place is such that it leaves you breathless. Mm. I didn't think that that event was going to linger with people for too long because there's simply too much invested in the game going mm. on. It did still shock me, apart from the promotional pictures of Damar Hamlin with various kind of dignitaries and luminaries and stars that were there at the game. It did strike me just how quickly the violence of the game was swept under the rug and forgotten amid the, the spectacle. It was a salutary and not altogether welcome lesson. I mean, I'm just surprised. This isn't our so topic sh- for the day, by the no, way. No, I, I, well, yeah, that's part of it is I'm not sure why we're going in this direction. But, yeah. Um, why does, I suppose you're not surprised, right? No, I'm not surprised. In the end, you're not. Because so much is invested. 
I guess that's the link to the topic, isn't it? The idea of what's invested. That's here. right. That's right. But can I just, before we go down that road, I, I think it would be wrong to reduce this to big investments, therefore things must be held on to. Because this is, I think, a common trope in the way that sport is spoken about. And I don't think it captures why sport endures no, even right. in the face of scandal. It's not just about money. Hmm. It's not just about, you know, fat wallets making big investments and profiting. Sure, that's happening. Um, and that might explain some aspects of sport, but sport endures irrespective yeah. of that. And, and in, it incidentally, well, yes, that, I wasn't insane. The show must go on just because there's so much money tied. I mean, there are livelihoods tied up with it, obviously. Yeah. And there's the profitability of the league that's tied up with it, obviously. But also, you know, I mean, one of the things that shook so many people so deeply about the injury that happened to DeMar Hamlin was the fact that it wasn't an overly brutal tackle and it mm. clanged, it jarred so violently with the depth of their investment in the game itself. The, the thing is, Waleed, you cannot watch playoff football in the United States without conjuring all these images of a well-nigh religious celebration from the way mm. that the anthem is done to the fireworks, to the jets, to, I mean, this is something that is almost liturgical in its scale and the emotions that it evokes from the people who buy into it are almost religious in their devotion. Mm. And I wouldn't say American sport is alone in that. No, nope, I, mean, I, I think agree. that's true. I mean, it's always flavoured a bit differently. The Europeans do football a little bit differently. Mm. There is a similar fervour, but there isn't quite the same... No, it's true. I don't know, Rasmus. There's a bit more high culture. Have you noticed, yes. unless you've paid any attention, have you ever listened to the Champions League anthem? Well, no. I'm stunned that okay. you haven't done that, Scott. Do you know what the Champions League is? <laughs> uh, yes, I do. Okay. So this is like the elite European competition where the best clubs in Europe from different countries play against each other. Um, it's interesting. Before the game, they all line up, national anthem like, but they play the Champions League theme. And it's this sort of quasi-operatic thing, you know, quite orchestral in at least a pastiche or something like that. And it's interesting because that is the water, like the high watermark of European culture, right? Mm. So for a, a European tournament or league, that's the way in which they choose to package it. And the Super Bowl packages itself really in what I suppose you would call the high watermarks of American <laughs> popular culture. That's <laughs> true. Yes. And Australia has Angry Anderson in a Batmobile. That's right, uh, which just captures everything, doesn't it? The high watermark of Australia. Culture. That's right. So there or, you go. Or but Jimmy Barnes. Let's, let's go back to the money. Yeah. So I know what you want to talk about today is something that I think I'm safe in assuming bothers you. It certainly bothers me. And that is the way in which sport has become increasingly, and big sporting events especially, so the Super Bowl being a very good peg for this, that sport has become increasingly a vehicle for gambling. Mm -hmm. Even that probably doesn't capture it because that suggests that there's this thing called sport that's going along and gambling has jumped in. But actually what then happens is this reflexive thing where sport then becomes viewed through the prism of gambling, even by people who may not be gambling. And especially, and this is where everyone gets scared and we do um, all kinds of current affairs stories on it, um, the effect of that sort of gambling advertising on kids. Yes. So that kids will then quote odds at you mm. as a way of understanding the game. I do not gamble. You know this. Mm -hmm. I suspect I will never gamble in my life. I have no interest in gambling. I don't even have the desire for it. It's not like, but I will watch the odds hmm. because that becomes a way in which it's sports commentary, right? The odds tell me something of truth about the game that is coming up or yeah, about the situation of the game as it unfolds. In the same way, by the way, that people look at odds uh, in the lead up to an election hmm. because the argument goes that the betting markets are actually a better guide of what's going to happen in the election than polling. Now, there have been recent elections where that hasn't worked, and I think, what was it, 2019? Yes, that's right. One or multiple of the betting houses paid out on a Labor victory, and, of course, that didn't happen. Someone then explained to me that when they pay out, they don't actually lose any of that money because that just gets bet again because it goes back to people's personal accounts and so on. So it means less than it perhaps appears that it means when they do that. So I, all that is a caveat. But the general idea is just the one that I want to put on the table here, which is that gambling odds, 
the different kinds of markets that get framed on who the highest goal scorer or point scorer or whatever is going to be, who's going to score first, um, the unbelievable combinations of multis that you can get, the fact that I even know what I'm saying when I tell you this, given I've never bet in my life, tells you about a kind of saturation, That's but right. also influences the way in which you follow the sport. So that it is true that in some ways the Super Bowl is like lastly a football event. It is perhaps primarily an entertainment slash showbiz event. And above the football is perhaps it is a, a gambling event. And that this keeps happening. Um, we're seeing this across all kinds of sports. And that's before you even get to the question of gambling on sports that no one's watching. Yeah. You know, 12th tier Australian soccer matches or something um, where you get match fixing going on and we've seen reports of that happening. So that's the context in which, I mean, the, the Super Bowl provides the excuse for us to talk about this. This is the issue that we want to explore. Mm. And I suspect you have my discomforts, but I also recall a conversation we had, I don't know, a year ago, where you seemed to think that the discomfort wasn't as straightforward as that, that there might be something to be said if not for this, then vaguely in its direction. Yeah, it's, it's more complicated than that. That's a wonderful summary. Can I take a couple steps back, though, and try to tease out two yeah. things that I think you've introduced? Um, it is worth pointing out just before we get to those kind of more imminent or immediate things. There was something different about this Super Bowl. Uh, sports gambling, sports betting of any kind, professional or amateur, has been under, in the United States, a federal ban until 2018 when the Supreme Court uh, ruled that it should no longer be under that ban, that the responsibility for legalizing or, or maintaining the ban needs to be devolved to the states. And mm -hmm. what we've seen since 2018 is, uh, last count, 36 states legalized gambling in their jurisdictions. Um, and this isn't just gambling on sports in casinos or with bettors, but this, of course, is online gambling. Uh, this is gambling through apps. This is gambling through the proliferation of very simple, very easy to use platforms that have come to insinuate themselves with existing social media apps, such that mm -hmm. the communal dimension that's often there with sports betting or fandom generally then becomes married, or you could almost, you could say, use the less flattering term, there's a kind of parasitizing of one on the other, so that betting together with one's friends then becomes an expression of jostling with, you know, one's friends over who's going to win a particular match and so on. So this is what made the Super Bowl a particular, this last Super Bowl, Super Bowl 57, a particular spectacle. I mean, 100 million bets were placed, for instance, on Super Bowl weekend alone. Uh, can I just say from the outset, I'm not going to name a single betting outlet betting because they're so ubiquitous. I actually find their ubiquity offensive. I find the fact that that these betting apps and sports books have come to insinuate themselves directly in sports coverage to find commentators and the people who you know, are supposed to talk to us at halftime about how the game is going. They're now talking to us about how the odds have shifted and how you can parlay a same game, blah, blah. You know, I find this, I find the ubiquity of that language offensive. I'm not going to mention any of the apps, any of the platforms, uh, but there was one particular one that at the high point of this, at a high point in betting during the Super Bowl, was recording 50,000 bets per second. Mm. Um, so Is these this are, worldwide or just in the US? Just in the US. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's something about this particular event that was the culmination of certain trends that have been taking place in online betting that then kind of galvanized after the Supreme Court ruling in 2018. Uh, and now with the steady drumbeat of legalization. And at some stage in the conversation, we should talk about why there was that blanket ban in the first place. It's not something that's existed in Australia. Uh, Australians are much more comfortable with sports betting, have been for, you know, it's been legal for 40 years. Uh, so it's obviously something, there's something different going on here. But you, you mentioned something before, related, which I find really interesting in your analogy of looking to the bookies when it comes to elections. Because the, what we've always been told is that bookmakers are more dispassionate. They're more data-driven. They have no horse in the race, <laughs> you know, mm. as, it, as it were. In other words, they look at the data. They're not barracking for one side. They're not fearful about one side winning or another side losing. They're simply looking at the data, and they're coming at what's supposed to be a dispassionate, intelligent, informed, quote-unquote, data-driven 
conclusion. Well, it's um, also a bit more subtle than that. Yeah. It's that the betting markets get framed by the, I don't know, aggregated effect of all the bets being placed. Yeah, that's right. And that those millions or whatever it is, whatever number... May well know something? (laughs) Yes. So they have kind of information within them that is better, Mm. frankly, closer to the ground, picks up all kinds of subtleties that polling simply can't. Yeah. Which Um, probably is not going to be the case with sports betting. So you're right. Well, it almost shouldn't, certainly shouldn't be yeah. because of the okay. the restrictions that exist on anyone who knows anything about the inner workings of the sport almost, on betting on it. Almost certainly, but we still see the steady still drumbeat happens. of yeah. stories. Yeah. yeah. So it seems to me that you've got these two pictures then, these two portraits of sports bettors. They're those who they don't have a particular investment in one team or another. They know something about the stats. They know something about the trends, they know something about the way these teams have faced up in the past, they know something about the ambient circumstances or whatever. And so they can make a dispassionate, it's not luck, it's skill, because I know this game better than you, which is why I'm going to win. Okay, so that's the one picture mm. of the sports better. And I should say that that was also one of the legal cases, one of the legal arguments that was mounted in some of the cases in numerous states in the United States. This is not a game of chance. This is a game of skill. Yes, there are elements of chance that can erupt from time to time. But if you really know the sport, you really know the players, you really know the history, you really know the trends, then you can win by dint of skill alone. So that's one picture. Or or you really know maths. You really know maths. Thank you. The other picture of the sports better, which is the one that I'm seeing more and more and more, is that betting becomes a particularly intensified form of fandom. Yep. Okay, you say that your team is the best. You say that they're a sure thing against whatever their opponent might be. Put your money where your mouth is. Show that you mean it. Show that you're, I would even use the term, ethically serious about your commitment to that particular team. Are you? <laughs> did, you did you just make gambling on sport an no, ethical I'm, virtue? No, I'm not. No, not a virtue. But what I'm saying is if you mean what you say, if you're not just a one-eyed partisan then prove it. Be serious about this. Let your actions back up your words. And that's where then you find the various pictures, the portraits that are either constructed casually, organically. Uh, We both listen to sports podcasts. Mm -hmm. I don't listen to too many of them, but I listen to some. I select them very carefully. I select them because I value the perspective and the sense of history that the podcasters bring to the particular sport that I care about. I'm staggered by the extent to which knowing the history of the game, knowing the trends that are taking off or that are developing, the way that they've become indissociable, hand in glove, with the whole range of things that you can therefore bet on. So it's not that there's betting and then there's sport. It's that one of the ways that you show your love of the sport, your love of the game, your understanding of the game, is by placing a bet. And then when the, uh, the shows, the commentary, or the pictures, the pictorial representations in the ads, then demonstrate the communal dimension to this. Getting together and competing with your friends by means of betting in the same way that the athletes are competing on the screen or on the field... These things yeah, although been... I have to say, that's not, that doesn't seem to be what happens very much. Like, so I know people who bet on sport quite a lot. Yep. And the image I always get when I talk to them about their experience is of them on the couch by themselves. Yes. What I'm saying is that's yeah. not the aesthetics of betting. The aesthetics is yeah. you are, by betting, you are participating right. in the it's sport. It's communal activity. It is communal. But, but, but no, it's not just communal activity. You are participating in the sport that you love. So the passion... Right that the players on the field, on the court, on the pitch are feeling, you're feeling a a degree of that too. So to that extent, that is the aspect, I guess, that I, the aesthetics of it, the fact that this isn't just dispassionate, this isn't just doing the math, reading the trends, but there's something, there's a kind of leaning into one's love of one's team. The aesthetics of it, I can understand. But I think deep down, that aesthetics the aesthetics of gambling, of sports betting, disguises a deeper corruption 
that's taking place in the way that we're consuming sport in the first place. Can I, before you get to that corruption, and perhaps you'll do that with our guest. Yes. Who'll join us very soon. But are you suggesting that there's an argument that what sports gambling does is allow you to watch better? Watch better? Watch mm. more intensely? Watch in a manner that is more emotionally engaged? Yes. I'm not or perhaps sa- even more dispassionately. Yeah, possibly. But I'm not saying this is a good thing. What I'm saying is right. I think this, one of the ways that it's sold and one of the ways that it's sold effectively is to say you're not just doing this for the money. You're doing this because you're a real fan. Yeah. And I guess what I'd want to say is the end of watching a sport is the sport itself. It seems to me that there's no consumption of sport that isn't heavily invested in a team because of that team's long arc, because of its failures, its, its successes. Its... Yes, which is why new teams are so difficult to get off the ground. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I guess my problem is as soon as you begin watching, especially in an age of micro-betting or who's going to make the next shot or who's going to make the next goal or who's going to get the next penalty or then what that does is that places this veneer over the top of what it is that you're watching. It fills the experience of watching the game with all of these ul- ulterior motives and benefits such that the game becomes an end, not in and of itself, but a means to this other end, which is already skewed by what it is sure. that I've wagered, what it is that I stand to make. But the game's never been an end in itself. The game only matters because something beyond the game, because it resonates into something beyond the game. Yeah, that's right. That's why if you're in a two-team town and you lose the local derby, it hurts so much. Yeah. Because when the final siren or the final whistle blows, you have to live with the consequences of it. So there's always been a social dimension to it, right? Sport is never confined to the game itself. So the observation you're making about sports betting there. I'm not sure that introduces anything conceptually new. So what, yeah. I, what I'm saying, Waleed, is that when I, when I mean the end of the sport is in itself, is the end of the sport is inherent to it. It's part of the narrative of that team. As soon as you introduce something where I am watching this, I want this outcome, I want this thing to happen because yeah. of the payout. In other words, you introduce because something that's telos. not... It's not a sporting reason. That's right. Then, so what, where would you categorise, for example, the significance of Don Bradman in, I don't know, Australia's relationship with the mother country? Is that introducing a new telos? I don't know. I mean, is that a... <laughs> well, well, no. Hang on. So, I mean, you know that basketball is my sport. Yeah. If the Lakers are a dud team one year, which they happen to be this yeah. year... Every time Celtics and Lakers go up against one another, I'm going to care more. Yes, because of the history between the because two of clubs. Because yeah. of that history. So, so there are ways that overlapping storylines can all congeal within the one game, within the one experience. Surely that's what's going on there, right? Yeah. I mean, cricket is always political. It always has those political overtones. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily extrinsic to the logic of the sport. It is a deep, it's an intensification of the significance of the sport as such. So, right. So, whereas with gambling, what it is is, but for the financial reward that is at stake here, I would have no interest in X. But because of this financial reward, I now alter the way I see the game or, and or, alter what I achieve. Or I overvalue aspects of the game that are otherwise relatively valueless or only okay. meaningful in their relative character because I've got a particular bet. All right is Lauren Guerrieri. She's Associate Professor in the School of Economics, Finance and Marketing at RMIT University. She's also one of the researchers taking part in an Australian Research Council-funded project on the transition of gambling from in-location venues to mobile phones, which makes, Lauren, you pretty much the perfect person to join us on the show. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So let's, let's pick up with something that we've alluded to, but we haven't really dwelt with, but I know that you're centrally concerned with. What does it do to gambling, to sports betting particularly, in a social media saturated age, in an age where the mobile phone is ubiquitous? What does this migration from sports betting, from the local betting outlet to the mobile phone, what is that doing to the way that we see sports betting, to the way that we experience it as an expression both of fandom and as a kind of social dynamic? 
Well, smartphones have radically changed now how gambling is consumed and how it's experienced. So it's very readily accessible. It can be done anywhere, anytime. It can be easily fitted in with people's everyday routines. And all of that is going to promote many, many more opportunities for gambling. And I think what's of interest here is that a lot of research to date has focused on problem gamblers and their particular individual traits. What really there is less research and less understanding about is the way that gambling is actually impacting everyday life, but particularly for this generation of smartphone users. And the way that gambling then is shaped by a range of very different social and cultural factors, including sports, obviously. One factor that I think really warrants particular attention and brings up some fairly uncomfortable perhaps comments and thoughts around corporate power is marketing and the way in which this is being marketed. Gambling marketing is incredibly pervasive now. So in 2021, the gambling industry spent $287 million on advertising in Australia. And there was a research study that found that 948 gambling ads were broadcast daily on free-to-air television in Victoria in 2021. So Is that just, like an average figure? That is an average figure. So presumably when there are sporting events on, it it's would higher. be much higher. Absolutely. And in, in the middle of the week where there aren't things going on, it'd be lower. Absolutely. So yeah. there is regulation which you know, states when that type of advertising can't take place, but it's really bounded really to protect children. But that doesn't mean that children are exempt from seeing this by any means. What we found in our study is that uh, obviously there's types of marketing that we're aware of already. Things uh, the gambling marketers are using, like push marketing, which is where you get those direct and personalised messages through text message or emails. Uh, our research participants spoke about the frequency of those and how they're bombarded with them throughout the day. There's also incentives and different inducements. So this is where you would get uh, a special or an offer from a gambling company that would ping on your phone. And that's trying to induce you to then engage with the application. And our research has found that that's actually incredibly influential in making people engage with these applications and engage in gambling more extensively. What's often of interest with those types of inducements, like bonus bets, for example, is that you'll get a message saying that you've been given a $20 bonus bet, and that acts as credit, if you like, in the app. But if you bet using that credit and you win, that credit actually ends up disappearing. So it's not really something that can be withdrawn. It's just a credit that's a way of bringing people into these applications. And So it's a free bet. Absolutely. And yeah. people see it as a risk-free bet for that reason. Mm. They don't see the danger of the inducement and how it's bringing them into the app. But presumably most of these people are already into the app. So it really is a risk-free bet for them, isn't it? I mean, it's a bet they're probably going to place anyway uh, and they just get it funded. I, I guess it's leading people to underestimate the risks that they're possibly taking. And it's possibly going to encourage riskier betting as well. So, for example... We had a participant in our study who was a primary school teacher and primary school teachers uh, need to have their phones on in class uh, for security reasons. He shared with us how he got a ping from a company. It was a particular inducement and he felt so compelled by it that he did place a bet whilst he was teaching in the classroom. And what's worth noting there is that is a, someone who's been screened as a low to moderate risk gambler. Right. So the way that people's behaviours are changing around this type of marketing really warrants a lot more attention. I think people don't really understand perhaps the more insidious marketing elements that are going on here as well. Mm. So these are the more under-the-radar techniques and there's really not a lot of research in this space, so this is where our project is, you know, I guess, offering some impact. Things like venue mode, uh, which is a particular feature on the applications where it's trying to encourage you to go into a particular betting venue. So it will tell you which betting location is closest to you, how far that is away, what the type of offer or inducement that you're going to get. So that might be a meal discount. Uh, it could be a bonus bet. But all of this is really helping to, I guess, normalise gambling as this type of everyday social interaction for people. Things like affiliate marketing, where betting companies are now partnering mm. with 
administrators of sports fan pages on social media and they're offering promotions that those administrators then post on these pages and they get a kickback for that. So these really sort of under-the-radar techniques that perhaps we're not aware of and are becoming increasingly embedded into what seems like an everyday conversation around sport, for example. Mm. Scott, I, I heard your intake of breath. Well, You've clearly got a lot to say. Well, no. I just want to ask, I'm going to cede all my... All the rest of my time, Mr. Speaker, to uh, you, Waleed. <laughs> we'll say about that. Can I just ask one clarifying question, though, Lauren? Just something that I'm struck by the way that this particular dynamic seems to pull in two different directions. I mean, you're undoubtedly right that part of the promotional push is to lower the bar of entry by means of various forms of inducements, promotions, you know, make a bet, but no consequence to you. There's also the projection of simplicity and ease and efficiency. See how easy that was? I mean, that's a line that I keep, you know, you can't imagine anything easier. So there's this seamless, easy, you can find your way into the app easily. You can find your way making a bet simply. In other words, everything is kind of clean and relatively sterile and inoffensive. But then that tends to be coupled with all of these inducements to engage in impossibly complex bets. So it's not just on the outcome of a game, but it's bundling one game with another game with another game or multiple things. So this team might win, but who's going to score the most points, who's going to foul out first and so on. So I'm just wondering, how are those, they seem to me like two contradictory or mutually exclusive strategies, the ease, the simplicity on the one hand, versus the enticements of impossibly complex bets. I mean, obviously, the complex bets are there to try to get people to lose their money by adding one thing too many. But but they're also they're also attractive because they allow you to show off the depth of that's your right. Budgeting. So I'm I'm just wondering how ease and complexity in the marketing, how do they work off one another? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So the ease is a way of, I guess, drawing newer consumers into the app. And there's very clever ways that companies have tried to reconcile those conflicts as well. So for example, uh, there's a feature on apps called Popular Now, and that's where you can get a live stream of what punters are betting on, on either side of the equation. And you can actually just replicate that bet if you see someone doing it. So it's introducing you and it's helping you understand how you could also place this bet by yourself in the future. It's stepping you through the decision-making process of that. So when people start to understand some of the complexity behind these bets or how it should be undertaken, they feel more confident than participate accordingly. But as you've said, there's a, I guess there's a grade here where this type of betting thrives on ideas of skill and competitiveness and knowledge. And there are people who take this sort of passion and this pursuit to the nth degree. There's Reddit forums dedicated to this, where people will post how they're out, trying to outperform one another on this. So understanding the complexity behind those bets is a type of performance in that way that mm. shows how much you understand about the sport, even if you can't play it yourself. Or even how much you understand about gambling. Absolutely. So, okay, it's at this point, I think, things start to get murky yeah. for me because it starts to sound a lot like someone talking me through their investment strategy in the stock market, for example, which is not something I think we would react to in the same way. I mean, some people might have a problem with that. They might have a problem with the whole idea of the stock market or maybe if not the whole idea, the level of artificiality it has and the dominance it has over our lives and our future well-being through superannuation, all that. Okay, I get there's a discourse there, but it's not the same discourse. And yet the more, I don't know, sophisticated we want to say or systematised our approaches to betting might be, the closer these things seem to become in my mind. Is there a good conceptual reason for considering them differently? I guess the idea here is that gambling companies want you to feel like you have a sense of control over mm. what you're doing here. Yeah. And what I think consumers often don't realise is how little control that they have. Uh, so even the ways in which their behaviour is being influenced through these applications, there's really intrusive ways in which companies can try to influence behaviour. So the privacy settings, for example, that you have on your phone, 
betting companies can often override some of those settings. One which we found in our study was that instead of your phone going to sleep, if you'd activated in venue mode in a venue, your phone's not going to go to sleep. So then there's that constant lure to then re-engage with the app. And the phone not going to sleep means what? That you get notifications? Constant notifications. Right. It's there. It's looking at you. It's an enticement uh, mm. to re-engage. Obviously, we can look at things like terms of use. They're 40-page documents, which no one is going to read. And it's very easy to scroll down and just tick a box, but people don't really understand what they're signing up for then mm. as a result. There's some interesting things around access rights. So if you are too successful on these apps, you can be easily blocked by the companies. On the other hand, mm. if you're not performing too well, the level of marketing and inducement is going to increase to you. So none of which is true for the stock market. Indeed. Right. So what you're basically saying is that in the context of especially online gambling on your phone, things like that, it's a game and you're being gamified and that's what makes it conceptually distinct. Could you fix that though? And if you fixed that, but we still had the onslaught of advertising and it still became a way that, you know, a lens through which we viewed sport. Would you still have a problem? I think there's a different discourse which is circling around sports gambling, and that is the discourse of responsible gambling. And here, so this is the idea that people can exercise a sense of control and informed choice to ensure that their gambling is kept within these sort of, you know, bounded limits of time and money. So there's different ways that consumers have been told that they can gamble responsibly. So they could set bidding limits, they could put ad blockers on their browsers, they could play with their application settings to turn off notifications, they might take the app temporarily off their phone, they might even self-exclude from these apps. But what this is all doing is it's responsibilising the individual who's actually experiencing the harm to act, mm -hmm. whilst it's allowing these companies to avoid responsibility and in fact, look like they're possibly appearing concerned in the process as well. Yeah, which is why they've they've introduced a bunch of new taglines you have to come up with or you have to put on the end of your ads that are far. They haven't come through yet. I keep waiting to see them, but they're far more direct. They are. Yeah. Uh, look, and that's one really great progress in this space. But I think the discourse is so pervasive that the idea that it's the individual it's up to them to act in the end of the day and these sorts of structural constraints around us aren't really the problem. That's a real a diverting, I guess, of where attention should be here. Yeah, but that's in some ways the fundamental debate in all of politics and sociology, right? It's to what extent can we lean on agency and to what extent do we lean on structure? Indeed. Now, I, I'm happy to fall on the structure side of this argument where you're talking about the way that the apps game you. But once that's gone, this hypothetical world I'm creating, where the gamified elements of the app are gone, is that not the time for agency? Is that not the time to say to someone, you know what, it's on you now. And if you have a problem, you have a problem. Because you've made an agent-driven decision to engage in sport in this way. You're not being induced. You're not being hooked in by a machine. And if you accept that, then it kind of is a free-for-all at that point. It's up to the sports betting agencies to do whatever it is they want to do in order to let you know what they offer so that you can decide whether or not you want to play. Or do you want to draw the structural boundary somewhere else? Well, I think one thing that you would infer from that type of argument is that this is a rational decision-making process. Uh, we conducted some brain mapping as part of our research study where we had people uh, with, you know, with the electrodes on their head live betting two actual sports using actual gambling apps in the lab. Mm. And what we saw was that even low to moderate risk gamblers were exhibiting really similar brain responses to pathological gamblers. So what that showed to us was that even those with quite low risk over time can possibly develop into problem gamblers. But crucially, what we saw was that areas of the brain that were associated with emotional engagement, they're the ones that are activated during sports betting mm. and whilst, particularly whilst you're watching a game. So that actually undermines a lot of that sort of discourse because if it's around emotional engagement which is being activated, then notions of uh, rational thinking or self-control really start to become undermined. Mm. Scott, do you want to jump in or do you want me to keep going? Oh, I wouldn't mind jumping in just very briefly no. unless you've got a sort of burning hot take, Willie. Well, I, I just want to follow up on that, mm. if that's okay. And yeah, then I'll course. see the rest of my time. Um, 
I hear that argument, Lauren, but I guess the problem I have with that is if you're going to assess things that way, it is a scary number of things that you could apply it to. I mean, who you decide to marry, for example. I don't know what the brain scans would say, but I would be very surprised if there aren't all kinds of emotional centres of the brain pinging at crucial moments in that process. Are we to say that this is not the decision of an agent? I'm absolutely not discounting that argument. I think what I'm trying to say is that it's so far swung the other way in this particular environment at the yeah. moment where the individual is highly responsibilised and we mm. need to achieve perhaps a bit more balance here. It's not to say that that's not important and that's not a possibility and that's not a way in which policy can try to grapple with this really complex, sticky issue, but I think there's a lot that's been neglected on the other side of that argument at the moment. Okay. Mm. All right, Scott, go for it. I was just wondering, Lauren, I mean, there are plenty of differences between American culture and Australian culture. It's something that Waleed and I try to keep insisting on again and again <laughs> on this show for various cultural, religious and other strange reasons. There is an ongoing degree of social opprobrium surrounding gambling in the United States. So despite everything that we see, despite the saturation of ads, uh, the last survey that I saw that was taken in 2022 found that less than 6% of Americans had placed uh, an online sports bet in the previous year, and just over 17% of Americans had ever placed a sports bet. So there seems to be a degree of social opprobrium. Uh, now, I have no doubt that it's being normalized. I have no doubt that one of the reasons that sports betting companies are at the moment, many of them are making a loss because they're trying to get a, a degree of saturation. They're trying to get so many new people into their folds uh, and then, uh, you know, be guaranteed some kind of profit later. In Australia, there's no such social opprobrium. I mean, uh, gambling has been normalized to an astonishing degree. There still is an opprobrium surrounding addiction, which is why I think many, many people are really reluctant to ever admit something like addictive qualities, addictive behaviours. So, again, that leaves you in a difficult position that there's a normalisation of gambling. There's a tendency to avoid the nomiker, the name, the description of being an addict. And yet I wonder what happens when so many of the aggressive marketing strategies that are being pioneered at the moment in the United States to try to get many, many, many more gamblers. What happens when they are copied here? where there's no such social hurdle that needs to be gotten over, where the boundaries of entry or the bar of entry is much lower. I mean, from what you've described, you're saying that many of the addictive behaviors, uh, many of the signs of addictive behavior are being registered even among those who wouldn't classify themselves or wouldn't necessarily be categorized as gambling addicts. Are you worried that the sophistication of the online strategies, the ubiquity of them, uh, that that could be more perfidious, that could be more harmful here than it already would be in the United States? Absolutely. I think it's a, it's a dangerous combination, the smartphone and this type of marketing. What we saw was that there was an increasing intrusion into people's lives that was uh, taking place through this type of smartphone-oriented uh, gambling. So people were betting at work, uh, they were betting late into night, early hours of the morning. They were distracted in family life. And these sort of, I guess, pre-existing boundaries between work and leisure were really starting to fall apart. So if you're going to have a greater saturation in that environment and allow these types of really quite clever marketing techniques coupled with these technologies to take greater hold and to evolve in different ways it seems like something which should be warranting more attention. And unfortunately, policy is just struggling to keep up with this at the moment. Most gambling advertising policy looks at traditional media. It's not looking at these types of evolving and complex online digital marketing techniques. Mm, but I guess the, the the focus on traditional media makes some sense in the context of sports gambling because it's usually via traditional media, traditional media that you're watching a full game starting to change. And the kids watch full games. I don't know. That's separate. Yeah, I get it. But 
It's when you're sitting down to watch the footy on a Friday night and at three-quarter time the ads come at you and that sort of thing. I can understand that being the issue. And in some ways it's is it worse. It's worse in this way, that I think when that comes at you while you're watching the game, it becomes a legitimate way of viewing the game, the prism effect. When it comes at you through your activity on a sports betting app, you're in the world of betting, not in the world of sports watching, if you know what I mean. Like the primary activity is the betting. The primary activity when you're watching a game on television is is the sport watching. And so there's something about an intrusion there that feel even if it's not practically worse, that feels worse. Yeah, that but... Uh, feels somehow more debauched. Unless, unless, Willie, the avenues into the world of in-app sports betting come through, for instance the sports commentary podcast you're listening to or the Mm. commentary that is running alongside of the game that you're watching. And then not so much sort of pop-up ads, but, you know, either links to or other ways of going from whatever you're doing now to this other easy thing that can open up. In other words, I mean, this is, this is guerrilla marketing. This is sort of embedded organic. uh, You know, when we talk about this as saturating sports coverage, I think that's the only way of referring to it. The two have become indissociable to the point that you can drift easily from watching to doing something that then is meant to complement or is meant to enhance your experience of watching. I think there's two different things at play here, which both warrant attention. So you've got this, I guess, cultural reimagination now around what sport is and what it constitutes. Research shows that children can't distinguish between gambling and sport. They see them as one and the same now. So that's how a new generation that's growing up with this Mm. in traditional media understanding sport and Mm. what it involves. But we know that there's an increasing problem of sports gambling applications leading to problem gambling. So it does warrant attention in that way. And Mm -hmm. the apps now have allowed it so that you don't need to even go outside of the app. You can watch the game on the app. You can message your friends in a group through the app. So what had previously been WhatsApp or Telegram conversations, marketing companies have realised that and they've now offered things like Bet With Mates. So it's full integration is what you're saying. It's a fully integrated experience. And uh, some of our research participants, they showed us photos of their betting spaces in the home where they would have multiple screens set up. You'd have a Reddit forum. You'd have, you know, your chat group. Uh, you'd be looking at the odds. You'd have mm. the game. That's not even required anymore. You can just do all of that through mm. a single application. It's funny you say that this sort of heightens the emotional engagement with the sporting content. When you describe that scenario, I can't imagine being emotionally engaged yeah, in the sport right. as sport because I'm too distracted by it. <laughs> Every other aspect of it. But clearly I'm a very unfashionable sports watcher uh, in that regard. Lauren, we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. Lauren Guerreri, Associate Professor in the School of Economics, Finance and Marketing at RMIT University, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're at an end. We'll see you next week. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.